Now we have been in the book of Exodus now. This is our 83rd week in the book of Exodus. And I hope it has not become drudgery for you. It has not certainly been drudgery for me. It has been an exciting adventure as we have walked through this study. So we're going to continue today in The Great Escape, which is our walk through the book of Exodus. And what we've been doing over the last few weeks is we've been looking at the construction of the tabernacle, right? We're looking at that specifically. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the coverings of the tabernacle. We talked about the three layers of, of animal skins that represented humanity. And then we talked about that inner lining, that one that was a picture of the beautiful, uh, um, beautiful uh, heavenly abode of God, which was the which was the, uh, the, the fine linen. Then we went on to that. From there, we moved on to the structure of the tabernacle. We talked about the boards, uh, the sockets, uh, the bars. We talked about the rings. We talked about all these different components that made up the framework that would hold the tabernacle up. And as we looked at that, what was cool was we saw God intricately showing us in that thing pictures of sinful humanity. He showed us pictures of God, and he showed us the redemptive power of the Lord and his plan even in those simple elements. Then last week, God set aside four verses and just kind of rocked our world, right? We looked at last week was called the doorways of God, and we looked at some specific pieces of fabric that God had put in the tabernacle. One was the doorway to the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and the other was the doorway or the tabernacle into the, into, or the doorway into the tabernacle. And in each one of those, we saw not only what they physically represented, but we also saw the fact that they were a picture of spiritual birth as well as spiritual intimacy and doorways into that. And God showed us some really awesome stuff in that. But what I want us to keep in mind is the fact that as we're looking at all these real specific things, remember, this is tons and tons of gold, tons and tons of silver, intricate uh, woven fabrics and all these beautiful things. But what we got to remember is the fact that this is a cheap facsimile. This is a cheap copy of the real tabernacle. The real tabernacle, the true tabernacle, is in heaven. And what we have here is Moses is making a representation of what is in heaven. And we need to make sure that we don't get caught up on the temporal, that we keep our eyes on the eternal. Because yet this may be a little bit spectacular if we were to see it in person. This would would be a pitiful comparison to what God has in store for us. In Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 5, it says this, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. He says, look, if this, is, if this is important. Get this. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Right? This is, now look at this, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. It says, the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. He says, look, so keep your mind, keep in mind, don't get caught up with this building and all the work that's being done here. Don't get your focus here because recognize this is nothing more than a representation of God's true tabernacle. Verse 3 says this, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have someone also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Jesus is separate from them. And those men that offer according to the law, the priests on earth, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. He says, look, they're, they're, everything they do here is pointing to heaven. And he says, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, foresee, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. He says, look, you've seen, I've given you a glimpse of the real tabernacle. Now make this one after the model of what I've shown you. So he's saying, look, you know what? What I gave you a glimpse of, reproduce it on earth. Don't get focused on the temporal. Get focused on the eternal. And that's the way you and I have to live this life. Right? The Bible says walk by faith and not by sight. Right? So we live, we want to put our focus on the spiritual realm, not on the physical realm. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says this, While we look not at the things which are seen, 
but of the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Then in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, if you are born again child of God, seek those things which are above, and where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. He says, look, your eyes should not be here. This is not where your focus should be. And what the problem is, because of the reality of what we live in, and we live based upon what we see, because I can touch it, because I can hold it, because I can see it, I go, well, that's real. But in reality, God's saying, look, this is all just temporal, right? On your tombstone, there will be a starting date and there will be a finish date. So your reality is going to be limited by that dash, right? And that dash is the reality as far as we, from the world's perspective. But understand, we're an eternal being. So the true reality, what really exists for all the time, is what God's saying that we need to focus our attention on. So what he's telling Moses here is, look, follow the pattern. Follow me. And what's been our study on Wednesday nights? God directed us over to follow me, right? Jesus says, if, you are to be a, if you're going to serve me, he says, you know what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So we look at this. He's saying, look, follow my pattern, right? And he's telling Moses, follow my pattern. Now, where is Jesus right now? He sits at the right hand of the Father, right? In Colossians 3, 1, it just said this. Wherein, it says, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Notice the present tense. It doesn't say will sit. It sitteth. He sits currently in heaven. He says, follow the pattern of God. So as we look at the tabernacle, what's important to pay attention to is the fact what the tabernacle, we've been talking about it for the last few weeks. What does tabernacle mean? It means to dwell with, right? To dwell with. That might, might say, hey, dude, later on, come to the house and we'll tabernacle. <laughs> what I'm saying is, hey, come to the house and we're going to hang out, right? We're going to spend some time together. And what we look at here is this aspect of tabernacling. What it is, it's about restoring fellowship. Because that fellowship was broken back in the book of Genesis in chapter number 3. And then God's saying, hey, I want to dwell with you. So we, in fact, you know, five different times in the book of Exodus, we find where Jesus, where, where actually God says that he wants to meet with humanity. Again, again, he keeps saying, I want to meet with you. I want to meet with you. I want to meet with you. I want to tabernacle with you. And remember that the tabernacle is the richest source of spiritual pictures and types in the Bible. So we know that God in this tabernacle is always pointing us to something else. He's always using it to direct our attention somewhere else. Don't get hung up on the temporally saying, look, don't get hung up on all the parts and pieces because each one of the parts and pieces is pointing you to something else. Get spiritualized so you don't get stuck up on these things and just think about a tent in the, in the wilderness. Think about the spiritual pictures that I'm teaching you as we speak. So we always gotta be mindful of that. With that in mind. Now, there's a John, there's a verse that we talk about all the time in John 1. John 1, 14, right? And what's a, that's the verse we always talk about. Oh, you know what? Jesus was born and he became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice that part right there. What did he do? Tabernacle means to dwell with. Became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So Jesus came and tabernacled with humanity. So here we are 1,400 years earlier 1,400 years earlier, this tabernacle is pointing to a physical manifestation that will be on the earth about dwelling with humanity. Do you see what that's pointing to? The tabernacle is pointing to Jesus. It's all about that. So as we move into this construction project, as we move forward, we're going to be moving away from the actual outer parts. We're going to move to more of the actual content. So today we're moving into the Ark of the Covenant. Now back in December of this past year, we preached through this through the instructions on the tabernacle, or the instructions on the Ark of the Covenant. So I went pretty detailed at that point on the specific parts and pieces of the Ark. But today what we're going to do is we're going to focus on it from a different perspective. And what we're asking God to do is not only show himself in it, but also show us really the intricacy of the Bible. 
and how incredibly detailed and how everything is designed to dovetail and work together. And the message today is called The Arcs of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today, for giving us this opportunity to be in your house. Lord, thank you for the word of God that is so unbelievably intricate and so detailed, Lord. And it's so wonderful to see how your hand has laid the entire thing out. And Lord, as the more we study and the more we learn, the more we realize we do not know. Uh, God, it is incredible. So I pray that today, Lord, you'll help me to get out of the way, Father. I know that you've shown me some things. And Lord, there's maybe some things you'll show me even now as we're preaching this. Uh, Lord, help us to learn. Help us, Lord, not just to take this and help it to be information for us, but Lord, help it to be transformation. Help it to change us, Lord, that we might see who you really are. And Lord, through this, who we really are. God, I thank you for this day. I pray that you'll help me to disappear, that you might preach in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Exodus chapter number 37, verse 1. It says, And Bezalel made the ark of Shittim wood, two cubits and a half was the length of it, and a cubit and a half the breadth of it, and a cubit and a half the height. Now, a cubit, this is what we want to work out. So basically it's saying it's about four feet, four inches long. It's going to be about two and a half feet deep, and it's going to be about two and a half feet tall. So not very big, okay? This is the ark that God's going to have him build. Now, what's interesting about the word ark, ark just simply means box. That's what it means. It's just, an, uh, just a box. So what's interesting is we look at the ark, and then we think, where do I first see the word ark? Where does it show up in Scripture? We go back into Genesis chapter number 6. And there is a very famous ark that most of us are familiar with. And especially if you've been to a nursery in anybody's house, guess what? There's some kind of book in there with Noah's ark. Genesis 6, chapter number 6, verse 13 says this. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, I want you to notice here, he does not say I'm going to destroy them on the earth. I'm not going to destroy them on the earth. He says, I'm going to destroy them with the earth. He said, I'm going to use the earth to destroy humanity. And what's going to be interesting is that's going to come from below and from above. God's going to actually open up water from the base of the earth. Genesis 7, 11 says this, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the seventh day of the month, the same day, were all the fountains of the great deep broken up. He says, look, fountains, the wall, the water. You ever think about the fact that there are streams that just run? Like for hundreds of years, there's a tremendous amount of water underground. So what God does, he brings all that water to the surface. And at the same time, he opens up the windows of heaven. It says, and the windows of heaven were opened. And why does God bring this great destruction? Genesis 6, 5 tells us why. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I tell you what, as we're looking at our culture today, we look at the imaginations of humanity that will be displayed on the Internet because now we get to look into people's inner beings, right? We get to see people's inner thoughts. When people sit back and they troll one another and they rip each other apart, we look at the evilness of humanity and the destructive force that's there. So we can see something familiar for us here. But what's amazing, these people have fully embraced sin and turned their back on God. But what's interesting here is the fact that we see God's mercy, okay? God's going to extend mercy to any who will listen, okay? He's going to give a warning, and then it's those who will respond. And how does he put that hope and that mercy? How does he display it? In an ark, right? Listen to this in Genesis 6, 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Pitch was like a, a thick tar kind of stuff that would make it waterproof. So we see God's very first commissioning of humanity to do a building project is 
the ark. This is the very first time God calls humanity. He says, look, you're going to build something specific. He tells them how big it's going to be, gives them all the specifics, and he gets to work. Notice that he gives right off the bat. He tells them the kind of wood it should be made out of, exactly like he does with the ark. And then he gives the same, he gives dimensions. He says, this is the length, this is the depth, and this is the height. He gives the exact same thing here. Notice this in Genesis 6.15. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it. Make it of the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. So it's going to be 450 feet long, it's going to be 75 feet wide, and it's going to be uh, 45 feet tall. Length, depth, or length, breadth, and height. Again, three in one. And what's awesome is the fact that we find out throughout, throughout creation, God uses threes, all the time. And it's always three and one, three and one. He says, he'll give descriptions there. Look at the colors, you name it. So three yet one. And I'm sure that's purely coincidental, but it is just the way it is. So the purpose of the ark, right? Noah's ark was to provide an escape, a way of escape for the judgment of sin, right? It is a way of escape. And what would be about this vessel? It was to protect those that would listen. Anyone that would listen to God's word of warning, anyone that would respond to it would be protected from God's judgment because they heeded the warning. Guess what? God would count it to them as righteousness. Listen to this in Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. By faith. So we see here that his salvation was by faith. You and I, guess what? This picture salvation through Christ by faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith. It's the exact same thing. So what we see in Noah's story here is the exact same concept. Look at what the Lord said about himself. Pictured throughout the Bible. Now, as we look at this, remember, we're always looking at the pictures. What God's saying. He's saying, look, let me reveal myself. Let me reveal myself. In, 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 Matthew, in Luke 24, 27, he says this. And Jesus was talking, he says, in the beginning at Moses, he says, and beginning at Moses, he says, way back in the book of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, he says, look, in the whole Old Testament, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So when he sat down with the disciples, he said, hey, fellas, you know, these stories you've been reading for all these years and all this stuff you've memorized. Let me just show you a little something. Did you know that that's me? And they're like, what? Did you know that that's me? What? Did you know that's me? What? Every book of the Bible, all the way through it, guess what? I'm throughout the whole thing. I've been picturing myself throughout this entire scriptures. This Old Testament is a picture book to show you me. Man, and that's what we're looking at today, man. So cool. Anyway, um, so the story of the ark pointing to salvation. God, Jesus proclaimed a warning to the world. Guess what? As Moses was, as Noah was proclaiming a warning, Jesus proclaims a warning. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many shall be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So those that come by faith will be in Christ, right? They will be saved in Christ. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now, listen to this, no condemnation to them which are in Christ. They are in Christ, who are in Jesus Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So those that were in the ark would be saved. Those that are in Christ will be saved. Romans eleven twenty eight 28 says this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Noah and his family, what were they able to do in the ark? They found rest. They found rest. And this is such an awesome thing. But in Noah's day, anybody who did not believe 
Anyone that chose not to listen. All those that said, you know what? No, 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 I'll just stay in the world. They will face the damnation and the destruction at the hands of God, right? How do we know what happens? Take a look. Hebrews 10, verses 30 through 31. And we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Now, when you read that, sometimes we read that and we miss over was a word in there that really, really, really stands out almost like a slap in the face. Look at this word right here. And he says, I will recompense, don't mind that, saith the Lord, and again, again, the Lord shall judge his people. He says, look, I have judged this planet before, and I will judge this planet again, right? That warning has been sounded. Verse number 31 says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if we jump back here and we look at Noah's day, we can certainly see by the results of what happens here, that's a really true statement. Genesis 7, 23 says this, And every living substance was destroyed, which is upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and, that, and they that were with him in the ark. Just like in Noah's day, man, there is coming a judgment. There is coming a judgment upon this earth. Listen to how Peter ties the two things together in 1 Peter 3, verses 20 through 21. Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. So the very thing, the very force that was supposed to destroy humanity, literally gently lifts Noah and his family and carries them to safety because of the ark, right? The instrument of their destruction was actually the instrument of their salvation. And then in verse 21, he says this, The like figure, basically saying similarly, whereunto even baptism both also now save us. He said, look, they were saved through water, we're saved through water. Now that salvation of water, that's not saying that we're saved because we're baptized. Okay, he's going to qualify that in just a second. But what he's saying is this is a picture, right? It says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. So when you get, you hear people go, oh, I'm going to go get baptized. It's going to wash away my sins. That's not what he's saying. Look, it's not, that's not what this is. That's not what this is. Then he qualifies it first. He says, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. He says, it's the heart of the man that saves you. Baptism is a picture of the resurrection power. He says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying baptism pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and it's done with water, right? It's a picture of salvation. He's saying, look, this same thing, man, this picture of salvation is here in Noah's ark. How cool is that? He says, but bottom line is Peter's explaining that through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through his resurrection power that brought us from death unto life, we're saved from the coming destruction that every human being will face if they do not know Christ. So what an awesome picture we see in the first ark. Now, so now we have Noah's ark and we have the ark of the covenant that we're, we're, we're working on. But there's another ark that shows up in the Bible. There's three. Imagine that. Three again. So this other ark is linked to Moses as well. Now, if we think back in our study and we go way back now, you've got about got a year and a half. We go back to Exodus chapter number 1, and we saw in that study there was something there. But then, now, the slaves that were in Egypt, which is the, the Israelites, there's an issue swelling up in the heart of the Pharaoh, right? Now, the world, anytime we see the world referenced, or the Egypt, Egypt reference in the Bible, it always references the sinful world, okay? So Egypt's always a picture of that. So the current Pharaoh at this time is getting freaked out. 
he's getting overwhelmed because guess what? The Israelites are just growing and growing. There's just more and more and more of them. He's going, dude, they're outnumbering us. And if they change their mind and they decide to take it over, we're in trouble. So what happens here in Exodus chapter 1, verses 12, verse 12 says this, but the more they afflicted them and the more they multiplied and grew and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. He said, look, the fear starts to spread throughout Egypt and they're scared of the Israelites. Verse 1, 122 says this, And Pharaoh ch charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. So what he's saying, look, we don't want to wipe out the women because we need the workforce. We'll intermingle with them. Our men will mix with those women. And what we'll do is we'll have a workforce, but we'll have a lot more control over it. We need to get rid of the men because that's going to be a problem. And we're going to see in a minute why the, what the purpose of that and why this happens. Exodus 2, verses 2 through 3 says this, And the woman conceived, this is Moses' mother, and bear a son, and when she saw, saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put it there, put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. So what we see here, we see another ark. This ark is made to be waterproof. Why? Because the instrument of death would actually be the vehicle of salvation. The river is where all these children were to be thrown. The river was to kill everybody. So that, this right here, that same ark, again, we see an ark stepping in, and we see an ark saving. And that same resurrection power that was in 1 Peter 3.21 is pictured through the deliverance of Moses. It's really cool, man. Right? He tries. Now, understand, now the, the devils always had a desire to wipe out the Jewish people. Why? Why? Because through the bloodline of Abraham all the way through, there would be a child that would be born, the Messiah that's prophesied in Isaiah, right? So as we look there, and the devil, the devil knows that prophecy, and he said, you know what? i got to stop these Jewish people. we got to wipe them out. So if I can't destroy them ultimately altogether, what I'm going to do is if we'll just corrupt the bloodline. That way there won't be any more true Jews, and that will, the prophecy will not be fulfilled, right? So we look at this. So it's not by accident that the Jews have been under attack for as long as human history can go back. I mean, no matter where you go. Right now, there are countries all around Israel that wants to destroy it. Why? What are they doing? They're not doing anything, right? So for 1,400 years earlier, here we see this picture of, of Moses as he's doing the building and working on this ark. He's picturing what God's trying to do. He's trying to talk to us about the fact that there's a salvation coming. And what we look at is this attack upon these children. This instance, right? Satan thinks, boy, you know what? All the children have been thrown in the water. I got the victory, finally. But little does he know. Little does he know. That pesky ark with that one little child and the Egyptian. Amen. Finds this little baby. And God speaks to her heart. She takes him up. And look at the, the sense of humor of God. Where does he put him? In the Pharaoh's house. And the Pharaoh's like, come here, son. And he's, patting him. he's my grandson. He's, unbelievably, right? Yet he, so here you have a picture of resurrection. He should be dead. Yep. And yet he appears Amen. as a deliverer of his people. Amen. A picture of resurrection by way of the ark. Does anybody else think this is awesome? Amen. 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 Man, I think it's just awesome, dude. I love the Bible. <laughs> so freaking cool. Okay. Um, so this made possible way of the ark, the power of the ark. Uh, he's raised in Pharaoh's home, like I said. Interesting, when you overlay the picture, the story of Jesus Christ, and you overlay it, it becomes uncanny because you see, here's Jesus faced a death decree, right? There was a death decree made, and guess what? The very thing that was supposed to kill him, right? Well, look at this. The instrument, the instrument that was supposed to destroy Jesus, 
the cross in reality becomes the very portal for deliverance. Because it's not the cross. The victory is not at the cross, man. The victory is at the tomb. And what was supposed to be his death, the day of destruction, and the end of the line was in reality the beginning of deliverance for all of mankind. And we look at this story in Moses' life. And again, we see these beautiful pictures being displayed to us. And the instrument of death in reality becomes the portal for salvation. But if not for that little ark of bulrushes, slime, and pitch, then it would have been no deliverance. So yet again, we see the second ark, man, and the way God used it to save his people. So now to the ark of the covenant. Verse 2. And he ever laid it with pure gold within and without and made a crown of gold to it round about. So this ark is unique. This ark is not to be waterproofed, not to be covered with slime and pitch. This one is to be coated in pure gold. I have a picture, it's a representation of it, just kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about. And we talk about the crown. The crown is this part right here underneath the lid. So it's going to go up, it's going to have a raised point. You're going to see these things here on the sides. So as we kind of give you an image, I don't know that's exactly what it would look like. That's just an artist's representation of it. But that kind of gives us an idea of kind of what we're looking at. It's encased in gold. So we see that. Now, remember, we saw the boards. We saw what the boards represented. The boards were wood, right? And this is the same kind of wood. And it represents the corruptibleness of humanity, the corruption of humanity. And then we look at the fact that it was intermingled or connected with deity, which is God. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a blending of corruptible man with the deity of God. Who does that picture? The Lord, right? So fully God and yet fully man. Jesus, the God-man. Then on top of that, this ark has a crown, right? That crowning point, this part right here underneath the lid, this part here, that's its crown. Check this out. Revelations 14, 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. Notice capitalized, that's Jesus Christ having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as Revelation 19.16 will tell us. And guess what? He does come back as a king, but guess what? He also comes back as a judge who will execute judgment upon this earth with a crown and a sickle. God in man. Verse 3, and he cast for it four rings of gold to set, to be set by the four corners of it, even two rings upon the one side of it and two rings upon the other side of it. Now these rings, we talked about this before, they represent eternity. That's the picture of a ring. We talk about it in a marriage ceremony. It's always picturing this eternal aspect. And then it talks about the four corners. Imagine the fact that God is in control of this entire earth, north, south, east, and west, the four corners of the globe. That's what this is pointing to. Verse number 4, and he made staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark to bear it. So we look again at that picture. The staves are nothing more than the sticks, these long poles here. Because what it would do, this thing, when it was to be carried, it was only to be carried by the Levites, by the priests. No one else was to touch it, and they were not supposed to do it. Now, we get a little bit more further information here as we go back into this, the instructions that God gave back in Exodus 25. 14 through 16, we'll get a little bit more here. It says, And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. We know that. Now here it says, The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. He says, Look, I don't want anybody, anybody, to even be tempted to touch this thing. It will only be touched by the staves. Verse 14, And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony 
which I shall give thee. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He says the words of God are going to go inside of that thing. But this ark was never to be touched by human hands, ever, ever, ever. There's only one instance in the Bible where it is touched by a human being. And I'm going to read you the results of that touch. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And when they came to Nathan's uh, threshing floor, Uzzah, poor Uzzah, put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. Okay? What's happening here is it's being returned back to Jerusalem. David's having it bring it, and it's being brought to him by way of a cart. It was never supposed to be moved in any way but by the priests carrying it by the staves. And what happened was they loaded it onto a cart. And Uzzah just happens to be walking beside the cart. Poor Uzzah. And what happens is he, the, the cart hits a bump and the thing, boom, and he goes, oh, goodness. He just reaches over just to touch it innocently. Now, if they were doing it right, this never would have happened. If they were following God's plan, never would have happened. But the results are God's serious about this thing. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there, right where he was, for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. So he goes, oh, boom. And everybody's like, oh, snap. Dude. <laughs> Uzzah, man, bad call, man. You should, nah, man, that was crazy. And David hears about it, right? And David's like, oh, dang, don't even bring it into the city, man. Just take that thing somewhere else for a minute. I got I to gotta, I gotta adjust to what just took place. Uzzah's dead, man, dang, right? So that's kind of like, whoa. And they realize, man, God's not joking around. He talks about the sanctification of this thing. This thing is to be sanctified. It is to be holy. He's not messing around. Then additionally, we see that God instructs him that the truth, the, the words are supposed to be placed inside of the ark. He says, you're going to put the testimony in this thing. And it's cool. Because guess what? Remember, this thing's a picture of Jesus. Look what Ephesians 4.21 says. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. How cool is that? The truth is in Jesus. And this ark is going to be filled with the truth. Now, God was going to move. Now we move to the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Mercy seat, okay? Verse number 6. And he made the mercy seat of pure gold. Notice that this part of the ark, this part is absolutely solid gold. This is representing absolute purity and holiness. There is no combination of the two. This is absolute purity and holiness. It says two cubits and a half was the length thereof, and one cubit and a half the breadth thereof. So again, four feet, four inches by two and a half feet. You see the picture here. And so the mercy seat is actually the lid. So from here up, right here, up to here, this is all the mercy seat, okay? And that's going to be the covering or the lid of the tabernacle. And it says here, And he made two cherubims of gold, beaten, one, beaten out of one piece made he them, and on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the end on this side, another cherub on the other, other end on that side, out of the mercy seat made he the cherubims on the two ends Thereof, And the cherubims spread out their wings on high and covered with their wings over the mercy seat with their faces one to another, even to the mercy seat where, where, where were the faces of the cherubims. So we see again that picture. So we talked about the cherubims. They are the winged creatures. Understand angels do not have wings. You see them in the Bible. They look just like men. They always look like men. They don't have wings. But the cherubims do have wings. They've extended them over. And what's right here, this center part where everything's focused Right? You see the reverence of the cherubims, and they're focused, everything's focused upon the center of that tabletop, or that, that countertop, or that top, lid, whatever we're going to call it. That's the mercy seat. That's representing, representing the perfect, holy presence of God. Exodus 25, 21 says this, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above, upon the ark. This tells us this is the lid of the ark. In the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. 
And what's interesting about that is if we go to if we go over to Romans and we go to Romans chapter number three, verse 24, 24 and 25, Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay? So it's so we understand exactly what we're talking about. Verse 25, whom God hath set forth, Jesus, to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. The reason why I read you that verse is that word propitiation is translated mercy seat. The mercy seat. How beautiful is that? The picture of Jesus Christ is in the ark and it's in the lid, man. And we see this. So the redemption plan of God, guess what? It's always been the same. 1,400 years earlier, man, while this thing is being built, while God told them to make it, he says, like, I'm pointing to the future. I'm pointing to the redemptive plan. Way back here in the wilderness with these craftsmen knocking and banging and building this stuff, it's all about sinners coming to God. And it would be the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, that remission of sin that would be accomplished here. First pictured, right, in the blood of the bullocks and the lambs and the goats and the calves but then finally realized in the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 says this, But Christ being, being come, on high, come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. He says, look, just so you know, we're not talking about the tabernacle. We're talking about this tabernacle. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy, the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Jesus became the high priest, paid the sin debt of the world. And why does he do that? Why? Because he loves us, man. This tabernacle, that's what it's all about. The loving God looking at humanity and going, I want to restore that fellowship. I want to be with you. Exodus 25, 22, he says this, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all the things which I have given thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. It's all been, everything, it's all been through the whole history of mankind about restoring that relationship. So from Noah's Ark to Moses' Ark to the Ark of the Covenant, again, three, which is just awesome. The first two, picturing the redemption story of mankind. But the third one, the third one takes it to another level. And it's not just about the redemption. Now it's about the intimacy. Now it's about that love relationship with God. Not just about redeeming us, but now loving and communing with us. The holy presence of God. And only through the blood that is poured upon the mercy seat could that be restored. It's a picture, man, the loving presence of God. And what's cool is if you were to go to heaven right now, if I could flash you to heaven right now and you stood in heaven, you'd look around and guess what you would see? Representations of everything in the tabernacle. You'd see the showbread table, man. You'd see the lampstand. You'd see the, the altar of incense. You'd see all those things. But if you went behind the veil, guess what you wouldn't see? No ark. There's no ark. There's no mercy seat. Because guess what it is? It is a representation of God. And there, there's no need of a mercy seat. Because it's Him. Praise the Lord. And when you would be there, the amazing thing is that you and I would have access. You know what He would do? He would receive us into His presence. Us. Knowing who we are, knowing what we've done, knowing the guilt that we should carry. Yet because of the blood, he would receive us. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18 says this, 
Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will receive you. And then look at how much more sweet it gets. Man, if you're struggling today with your relationship with God, understand, what does He tell you? Come out from among them and be separate. Don't be in this world. Don't get caught up in this stuff. But if you'll get away from those things, touch not the unclean thing, live righteously, guess what will happen? I will receive you. On this earth, right now, I will receive you. I'll give you that relationship. And what will be the result of it? And I will, and it says, and will be a father unto you. A father, man. You shall be my sons and daughters. He says, I'm not going to treat you like you're just a creation. I'm going to treat you like you're my child. You're my baby. I'm going to scoop you up. And when you're crying, guess what? I'm going to wipe those tears. And when you're hurt, guess what I'm doing? I'm going to wipe away those pains. And I'm going to help you. And I'm going to heal you. We've got a world full of hurting, broken people, man. Shattered folks everywhere. Problem is, they're not coming out from among them. They're running deeper into the crowd. They're not, not touching the unclean thing. They're embracing the unclean thing. And then they're going, and why would God allow these things to happen? This is our own creation, man. The reality of our world today and what we're dealing with today is our own making. You've already heard people say, oh, they made their bed, let them sleep in it. But God still, even though we've made our bed, and even though we should sleep in it, He says, you know what? I'll still give you away. And if you'll look at the ark, you'll see, I want you. I want to restore that relationship. And not only will I receive you, but I will receive you as my children. How awesome is God? Oh, gosh. Man, if you don't know God, I'm just so sorry. Man, he's just awesome. So God wants to restore that fellowship. 3.8, we saw that, that Moses, that, that Adam walked in the cool of the day with God. He wants that restored that fellowship with us because his desire is to commune with us. Look at Exodus 29, verses 42 through 46. Exodus 29, 42 through 46. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. Listen to this. God, this is God saying, look, this is what I want. This is the whole purpose. Verse 43. And there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the children of Israel. Remember what Jesus did? He came and dwelt among us and will be their God. Verse 46, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord. Notice this, their God. Their God. If he's not your God, he wants to be. But you know what? You've got to turn to him because otherwise you have this, your God's in this world. And we know the destruction that he will bring. Our loving God wants to walk with us. He wants to talk with us, man. He wants to be with us. Why does he want to do that? Why? Because he loves us. Revelations 1.5, listen to this. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And it would be that love that would take him to the cross. Guys, our relationship, man, everything to get that relationship has already been done. God's done it all. He has prepared the way for humanity. He's prepared the way. And we can walk in fellowship or we can live in rebellion. The choice gets to be, it's ours. God's not going to control us. The question is, are we looking to restore the intimacy with us? Are we working to to reach God and and to try to give Him our life and to walk with Him in fellowship? Or are we so distracted by the world 
and our own personal cares because they become more important. And we think that all the things of the world, they consume us. And we get so wrapped up in the temporal instead of the eternal that we don't even try. We just accept this is our reality. Walk by faith, not by sight. See, God's love, through on His side, He's done it all. He has prepared the way. The mercy seat has already had the blood poured upon it. The price has already been paid. The sacrifice has already been made. A beautiful, contented walk with God awaits every single person who will come by way of the blood of Christ. And what we saw pictured in the arcs today is that through Jesus Christ, we can find deliverance. That's the whole thing, dude. It's all about deliverance. Deliverance from sin. If you're lost today and you don't know Christ, wherever you are, if you're lost and you don't know Him today, there is deliverance for you. I don't care what kind of sin you're involved in. Emotional. It could be financial. It could be moral. It could be sexual. Whatever it is you're wrapped up in. Lost or saved, because guess what? They're saved people that are caught up in sin too. They're caught up in some of the same garbage. Because what happens, they take their eyes off of Christ. They're not about the intimacy with God. They they're become intimate with this world. And this world will destroy you. Anyone that's lived in the world for any period of time can tell you that truth. Young people are like, well, I don't know. I'm going to try it for myself. Mm. I'm so sorry that's the attitude. That's the attitude that I had. And you know what? I live with the regrets of it today. If you can take the warning that God gives and you listen like Noah's family did and you get in the ark and say, you know what? I'm just going to go to the ark. I'm not going to go to the world. Amen. Amen. Delivered from sadness, depression, loneliness. Amen. Preach it. Delivered from a past that haunts you, that you just feel like you can't escape? Deliverance. Deliverance. But see, with every ark, there was something you had to choose. You're either in or out. In or out. It's the same thing with God. You're either in or you're out. And it comes down to this. What choice will we make? I can tell you the results of choosing out. We saw with Noah... Right? We saw the results of the destruction. There is coming a day when this world will face judgment like this world has never seen. God says this world and no man has ever seen the judgment that will come. It is going to be horrific. But God wants us to miss it. He says, look, I've given you away. Look at the pictures in the ark. The question is, will we choose God's way and deliverance? Or will we choose destruction? Lost or saved, guys, you can be saved today. And going, you know what? I choose destruction. And there are people whose lives today as born-again children of God that are causing people to go to hell because of the testimony of your life. Your family's watching you. Your friends are watching you. The Internet's watching you. People are observing your life. And you're involved in things that you should not be in. Or you never give God glory. You give glory to everything in the world except for God. And because of that, people who would come to the Savior, who would come to the deliverance, don't know it's there, and you're the one that's supposed to be the messenger. We're supposed to be like Noah, man. For 120 years, he cried out, and guess what? He got nobody but his family. But he did what he was supposed to do. He was faithful. And God's expecting the same thing of us. I don't care if people listen or not. Let your life speak. Let your voice speak. We're not promised tomorrow. Any one of us could be gone today. It could be our last day. Yeah. And we're so caught up with the stupid things of this world that don't mean a, anything. That's right. That the most important message in the world, salvation and deliverance by way of Christ, mm. is silenced. Right. It all comes down to this, man. Which will we choose? Do we stay in the world and suffer its destruction? Or do we reverence God? Do we swallow our pride? Mm. 
And do we accept the deliverance of Christ that we've seen pictured today in the arcs of God? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for today and the uh, beautiful pictures that you've shown us. Thank you for the word of God and, Lord, the just incredible intricacies that are there. Thank you, Lord, for loving us in spite of ourselves. Lord, though we do run headlong into destruction, God, thank you that you sound the warning and the ark sits and waits. And God, there will come a day when the age of grace will end and there will be a shift and judgment will be on its way. Lord, we don't know when that day will bring, when it's going to happen. You tell us it's like a thief in the night. So Lord, I do pray for any out there that today are lost and undone. They don't know Christ. They're lost. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that maybe are caught up in things they should not be. Their eyes, their imaginations, their ears, their hands, their lives intermixed with the destruction of this world. And Lord, the devil's using them to keep people away from deliverance. I pray for our surrender today. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at, I pray for surrender that we might come to him. God, use the message today, Lord, to help us to look within our own hearts. Help us to recognize the goodness of God, the love of God, but at the same time, the judgment of God. So with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, you know what? I don't know Christ. I honestly do not know him. I've heard of him. Guys, 19 years ago, I'd heard of Jesus. I'd heard his name. I heard about the cross. I knew about Christmas. I knew about Easter. But to me, it was Santa Claus and Easter Bunny. I didn't know anything about anything, really. I just simply heard of these things. But I had never put my faith in Jesus Christ. And today, you have an opportunity to receive him as your Savior, to accept the deliverance of God that he's pictured throughout the Scripture. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are, if you're watching this recorded, you're watching it live, whatever, He's calling out to you right now. And as he calls out to you, you have a choice. In or out. In or out. If you want in, he's opened the door. He's standing there waiting with his arms wide open, willing to receive you, willing to forgive you, willing to save you right where you sit. And no matter who you are, if you're willing to open your heart, this is not about a religious experience. This is not about a a, a magical prayer. It's not that. It's a matter of the heart. The Bible says, For the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's the heart of mankind. So as he calls out to your heart, if you want to receive him, I'm going to give you that chance to come in, to be in Christ. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, it's not like I said. It's not the words of this prayer that will do anything for you. God is listening to your heart. And if your heart is sincere, he will save you right where you are. If you're at home, pray it out loud. If you're here and you want to pray it in your heart and mind or out loud, I don't care. I'm going to lead you in prayer. Understand, it's not the words again. It's your heart. He's listening to your heart. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry. God, I've made a mess of this life and I know it. I'm where I'm at because of my choices. And today I come to you and I humble myself before the throne of God. And from the bottom of my heart, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Lord, I ask you to come into my life 
I ask you to save my soul that I might be in Christ. Lord, I trust you for my future. I trust you for my eternity. I call you my Lord today. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.